Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Could You Voice. Today's guest is Associate Professor Simon Rosenbaum from the School of Psychiatry at UNSW, who's also an honorary fellow at the Black Dog Institute. On today's episode, we sit down with Simon to discuss how physical activity can help address our mental health crisis. We talk about why exercise is so much more important than just looking good, the barriers to exercise, including time, access, and socioeconomics, and how exercise can be used to break down the stigma of accessing mental health services. You're listening to Coogee Voice. So one of the things that I really struggle with is this idea that we, we make it about an individual's choice. So we say, look, just don't be lazy, you know, just get off the couch and, and do some exercise. It's not that easy. There's a lot of barriers there, you know, systemic barriers, broader societal barriers, resources, that not everyone has a safe neighbourhood to go for a walk in. You know, let's take an example of, you know, a, a single parent living in a, a low SES area where it's not safe to go outside. They don't have access to shoes or they can't afford shoes. Um, they can't afford childcare so that they can go to a gym or get that time. All those factors play a part that we don't consider. So when we sort of put it on the individual and say, you need to be more active, but we don't go further than that and say, okay, what do you need in order for us to help you to be able to be more active? Simon, welcome to Could You Voice. How are you going today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Now, before we get into talking about your research, you live in the eastern suburbs, work at UNSW in Ramwick. What do you love most about the east? What do I love most? I mean, we've got the beautiful beaches for starters, which I think, you know, if you look at all the different places around the world, I think really we live in a paradise. It's an incredible spot. The people, the places, the view, the lifestyle, what's not to love? Is there anything in particular you wish you could change? Ooh, that's a tricky question that I wish I could change about the world or about where we live. Or... Let's just start with the eastern suburbs. We can get bigger then. Yeah, okay. Um, what I could change, I think we have such an amazing quality of life. What I would change is how do we, how do we help other people to experience the same quality of life that we get living in the eastern suburbs? That doesn't answer the question because it's not changing something in the eastern suburbs, but I think it's probably the – I just wish everyone – could appreciate how lucky we have it. That's a good segue into my next question. For people that aren't familiar with your research, can you give us a bit of an overview of what you do? Yeah. So a really quick overview is I I study uh, physical activity and exercise, um, but how that can help uh, vulnerable people, so people living with mental illness or people living in in refugee camps or low-resourced settings, developing countries, how physical activity and exercise can play a part in helping people feel better, improving physical health, mental health, and also our general well-being. So this is the million-dollar question. Why is exercise important? Yeah. So... I think when we when we think about exercise, typically we think about aesthetics and we think about weight loss. That's what it's normally linked to. But actually, it's so much more than that. You know, sport and activity, it, it brings people together. It links communities. It provides meaning. It provides inspiration. It can do so many different things. And so even people that live in places that aren't as lucky as the eastern suburbs can benefit from having access to sport and the community and the power that it brings. Um and how it can help people 
uh, even by you know reducing symptoms of of mental illness, improving health, so many different things that it can achieve. You've sort of just touched on this, but we do live in a part of the world where exercise to an extent is grounded somewhat in what you wear and how you already look. What are your thoughts on this and what dangers does this present? Yeah, so I don't want to be like it's not about being critical of anyone and that's fine and people that you know are, are supermodels and look a certain way that's great and you know good on them. There's no there's nothing wrong with that. People work hard for certain aesthetics and certain figures and that's great but there are also you know a big part of the population that don't have the same genetic blessing um, that maybe don't look the same way and for those people exercise can be this scary unattainable it's difficult you know it's intimidating if you think about a commercial gym I mean how many people feel comfortable that have never been to a gym before for example or don't look a certain way we think about young men that don't have bulging biceps. I mean, I don't look like I've ever been to a gym in my life if we think about, um, you know, so it's not accessible for those people, but actually the benefits that that, that could offer um, extend well beyond how someone looks. So it's kind of this idea that we're, we need to reclaim it a little bit from those links and separate it from the aesthetics and actually help people and help communities to participate, to engage um, in a way that, that serves them, in a way that can help provide meaning to their life. You've touched on participation. We know that at the age of 14, there is a huge cliff when it comes to particularly female or young girls' participation in exercise and sport. What do you think is driving this and how do we overcome it? So many factors. Um, You know, I think if if we're talking particularly about female sport participation there's a lot of things that happen then around puberty and around social expectations and and accessibility that can cause that to happen but i think a big part of it is is if we think about things like social media if we think about you know general media and the the images that people are exposed to and again that link with weight loss things like diet culture that we know have a, a really negative impact on mental health and well-being they can act as barriers and they can put people off from wanting to to participate and engage so I think, you know, as you've, you've said, you've got those critical periods there, you know, in adolescence and young adulthood where people do drop off and instead of, you know, sport becomes less cool or it becomes, you know, it takes on a different meaning. But we have to find ways to challenge that and actually keep young people engaged. And the reason being not for how they look but for how they feel. We want young kids, young girls, everyone going, look, I need to exercise because I feel better, because I sleep better, because I have, you know, good relationships and it's a social outlet. They're all the things that we need to be prioritising, not the idea that I want to look a certain way. Recently, I've been doing tours around New South Wales with a couple of my colleagues, uh, Linda Voltz, who's the member for Auburn, former chair of New South Wales Women's Rugby, Liesl Tesh, who's a gold medal Paralympian, in trying to address the issues of female participation. One of the things that I've found quite confronting, and it was something new for me to learn, is the correlation between Uh, remoteness and socioeconomics and the additional barriers that that creates in terms of people's participation. This is something, an area of work that you sort of work in. I guess I'm interested to know your thoughts on these particular problems. Yeah, um, this is like something that I'm really passionate about. So I think, you know, first of all, um, we talk about social determinants and that's kind of a bit of a, a buzzword for the things that are about our lifestyle or the things like how much money we earn and our resources, you know, our social capital. 
those things that determine our, our health, where we live, how much money we have, our education, all those sorts of factors. Now, they play a role in our ability to participate in activity. And so one of the things that I really struggle with is this idea that we, we make it about an individual's choice. So we say, look, just don't be lazy, you know, just get off the couch and, and do some exercise. It's not that easy. There's a lot of barriers there, you know, systemic barriers, broader societal barriers, resources, that not everyone has a safe neighborhood to go for a walk in. You know, you asked me what I love about the eastern suburbs. We, you know, we can go out at any time and go for a walk around these beautiful beaches, beautiful parks. It's safe. I don't have to worry about that. Um, not everyone's that fortunate. So telling people, look, you need to do more activity. But, you know, let's take an example of, you know, a, a single parent living in a, a low SES area where it's not safe to go outside. They don't have access to shoes or they can't afford shoes. Um, they can't afford childcare so that they can go to a gym or get that time. All those factors play a part that we don't consider. So when we sort of put it on the individual and say, you need to be more active, but we don't go further than that and say, okay, what do you need in order for us to help you to be able to be more active? Is it that, you know, you need discounted registration or discounted gym memberships or whatever it is, what's going to work for those individual communities? Um, and it is individual, those barriers. So it's it's trying to find those barriers and then address them together and find ways we can overcome it. Could you give us a snapshot of maybe five barriers? Sure. So, I mean, you know, I would say income is, is a thing and, and, and having the financial resources needed to pay for, you know, is it a Fitbit? Is it a gym membership? Is it a sporting club? You know, the fees, the registration fees, whatever it might be. Is it a sports bra for a woman? Absolutely. And there's some great charities around that. There's one um, based, I think, out of the UK or maybe out of Africa. I'd have to find out. But they provide bras for women to participate in sport because that is a barrier. And so if, if that's the issue, then overcome it. You know, we can address that. Other barriers, um, I would say we, we know about time. If someone's working three jobs to cover their rent, then they're not going to have that leisure time, physical activity that we need. And when we talk about the mental health benefits of exercise, it's not just if you're moving your body, you'll necessarily feel better. We know, for example, that high levels of occupational physical activity, so, for example, you know, manual labouring or those sorts of jobs, they don't have the same mental health benefits that that leisure time physical activity has. And so that's where you you have the choice. And I'd say it's a luxury. And actually exercise is a – it's become a, a privilege of, of, you know, the – the rich, essentially, it's a privilege of the people that can afford it, that, that have the resources, have the social capital to have that time, to quarantine that time, to participate. Um, so I think that's a key barrier. It's also access. If you, you, know, you talk about remote communities, what resources do they have there? Is it footy fields? Is it netball courts? Whatever it is that's needed. And then it's also the support and the education that, that you actually create in a community, you create a club that, that can support particularly the most vulnerable members of that community to, to get involved. You've spoken about the challenges of remote communities. In a place like Australia where space and distance will always be a challenge, how do we start to overcome this? I don't have the answer. The first thing I would say is talk to the communities talk to the specific communities because they will have the answer. So I can give you an example. A lot of my work has been in, in Bangladesh working in the, the Rohingya refugee crisis. Now, that's a different problem to remote Indigenous communities or remote communities in Australia where this is one of the most overcrowded areas in the world. You've got nearly a million refugees living in a tiny area. The biggest issue they have is there's no space. So the, the men can't play soccer, they can't play cricket because there is just no space. But there are ways to overcome it. You know, there are creative things that we could do in there. You know, one of the examples 
particularly with women, was using the women-friendly spaces as a way that they could create that space, have that little bit of an environment where they could move their bodies and participate in activity. And the young men did the same thing. So th- there's always a solution when you work with the community and when you ask them, what, how is this going to work? I think that the really interesting thing about sport and activity is it's completely transcultural. You know, communities don't need for, you know, outside experts to come in and say, hey, you should do some exercise. What they need is people to come in and say, what resources do you need to overcome those barriers to help you do the exercise or activity you want to do? Um, If that's providing cricket bats or footballs or building an oval, whatever it is, that's what we actually need to do because inherent within communities is this natural drive to want to participate in, in sport and that meaningful activity. What are the mental health benefits of exercise? Yeah. So the best way to answer that is, first of all, to think about mental health. So what are we what are we talking about there? And it's kind of a continuum. If you think about it, one end you've got poor mental health and then at the other end you've got, you know, optimal mental health. And at any given day, anyone is on a different a spectrum along that. So, you know, this morning you might have woken up a bit tired, had a late night, you're a bit stressed. I know you've got a lot going on, you're running around. So you're probably a bit stressed. You could say your mental health today is is, is not ideal. Yeah, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but just an example. On a different continuum there, we have mental illness, and that could be someone living with with what we call severe mental illness. It could be schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, down to no mental illness. And so if you put those together, you end up with this uh, sort of grid where you could have someone living with a mental illness, but at any point in time, they have good mental health. They're functioning, you know, their, their daily life is, is good, they're managing that condition. Similarly, you can not have a mental illness, but be having episodes of poor mental health. And the reason that's important is because exercise plays a role no matter where someone is along that continuum. So, for example, if someone's living with you know, a serious mental illness such as schizophrenia, we know that exercise can help manage symptoms. It, it doesn't replace existing treatment. It's really important to stress, but it can be added to usual care. We know it can reduce symptoms, help people feel better. But they're going to need more support and more resources to help that person and that individual overcome the barriers to participate. At the other end, we might have someone who's you know, mentally well, they're, they're feeling really good, they don't need a lot of support, they're self-motivated um, and they're able to participate. But it can still help those people to feel better, to sleep better. Um, you know, we, we talk about the runner's high, you, you go for a run or you go for a surf or a swim, you, you feel good. You, know, you get that sense afterwards and we know there are certain chemicals and neurotransmitters responsible for that. But there are other benefits as well if you think about someone who maybe, you know, isn't employed or doesn't have a lot of routine, a lot of social contact, suddenly you've put them in a social sporting competition, it gives them some purpose, it gives some meaning, gives a reason to get out of bed. That could be really important to help break that cycle of uh, depression, of loneliness that we know all feeds into it. So I guess coming back to the question about what are the mental health benefits, they vary. They vary from biological, physiological, that we know there are changes in the brain that happen associated with exercise, associated with getting fitter, but there's also other stuff around self-efficacy, so our belief in ourselves, our confidence, how we feel in our own skin, you know, our, our physical strength, ability to lift the grandkids, for example, things like that that actually are important to people that can play a part and feed into the mental health benefits. Simon, 
Recently in the media, there's been quite sobering statistics around the difference in age expectations between high socioeconomic areas, low socioeconomic areas, even in Sydney, and then even worse when we talk about regional remote communities, and in particular looking at the statistics around suicide rates. And it's even more stark when you have a look at Indigenous remote communities compared to non-Indigenous metropolitan high socioeconomic areas. Can exercise play a role in addressing some of these problems? Yes, it can. And I'll talk through a bit of the evidence. I think one of the things I need to stress here is that we are not saying that if if you are unwell or if you're depressed, that exercise will cure that. And all you need to do is get up and go for a walk. That's absolutely not true. And one of the worst things that happens regularly is when the media talks about this stuff around the idea of exercise and the links with depression. And we've had a fair bit of coverage of some of our academic work. Um, you know, I often enjoy reading the the comments on social media, but often it's people saying, "Look, I can't get out of the bed in the morning." how do you stop telling me to exercise? You know, that's just, it's not realistic and it's unfair and I agree. And so that comes back to that point about the the individual and laying the almost blame on the individual. It's up to us as a society in our healthcare system to say, right, how do we help those most vulnerable people with the resources they need to get active, to participate, to get those benefits? So what are the benefits? Well, we know that exercise can help reduce the severity of, of, of certain mental disorders. So that includes depression, anxiety, PTSD, We also know that those that are more active, it it becomes a protective factor. So just by moving a bit more every week, it does reduce risk of of depression and anxiety, um, which is really promising. It can also improve physical health, which we know, and physical health and mental health are intricately linked. We can't separate them. And so that's what's really interesting about our, our health system really has these silos. We have the physical health care, we have mental health care, and we pretend that they're not related. But of course, they're related. If you have a physical injury and you can no longer exercise, or if you're locked down due to COVID, we know that that plays into mental health. And there's really good evidence that in as little as seven days, when you make previously active people inactive, so you take away their ability to exercise, their levels of depression increase over that week. Um So it is an important determinant or factor of mental health, um, our ability to move our bodies. The other point is around, you mentioned suicide. We've we've published a bit of data showing that those that achieve the the physical activity guidelines, which are around 150 minutes of activity per week, there is a lower odds of of suicidal thoughts or suicidal behaviour. Um, so again, it, it speaks to this idea that being active is protective, but there's a lot of factors there where you could you could argue, you know, are those that are more active, you know, are there other things happening in their life that allow them to be more active that are also protective against uh, poor mental health and suicidality, which is, is probably true. So that's socioeconomic factors and all those things as well. But the short answer is we do have a, a really, you know, robust body of evidence showing that exercise is related to mental health, can improve symptoms, can help prevent certain disorders. The challenge is how do we embed this as part of our approach to improving community mental health? How do we actually make it normal for people to to A, seek help when they're experiencing poor mental health, but B, also have exercise included as part of their treatment plan and as part of the management strategy? Simon, there's been a fair bit of discussion around at the moment our mental health crisis and in particular with youth. Last year, a number of principals within the Coogee electorate have reached out to me and flagged that kids in year five and year six have been articulating self-harm and suicide. 
I guess broadly speaking, what do you think are the factors that are driving this? But I guess what can we be doing to support young people in our communities? Yeah, so I I won't speak to the factors, but what we can be doing to support them, what I would say is there's a huge, there's an under, an untapped resource here around sport and activity as actually helping to break down some of the stigma around mental health issues and also is what I would call as a backdoor into traditional mental health services. So I'll give you an example. If you think about, um, you know, imagine you're a young person and you're experiencing these symptoms, you don't know where to get help. And you find out, okay, I need to go to, to Headspace, the Youth Mental Health Initiative, or I need to go to my GP. Um, that can be quite a distressing thing to, to do or to, to, to try and overcome. You know, what if someone sees you walking through the door or what if you're, you know, anxious about that? I think we have a big opportunity as a society to actually meet young kids where they are, where they're attending. So, for example, if we think about sporting clubs, if we think about community groups, why can't we embed mental health services in those environments or actually use that as a way of engaging um, of catching young people that may be falling through the cracks and I think there's two ways that we can do this one is ensuring that the the sports-based organizations the coaches the you know the 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 volunteers they have some basic training in in things like mental health first aid and and there's some great work being done around this area Um, but then on the other side making sure that the mental health professionals are also trained in things like exercise and sport and activity so it's kind of bringing those two worlds together Um, there's a great example here in in Bondi and the the South Sydney local health district, the Bombay Early Psychosis Program. Um, Dr. Jackie Curtis is the, or I should say Professor Jackie Curtis is the clinical director there, um, who's really set up a, a world-leading program where within a, embedded in a community mental health service is a fully functioning gym run by exercise physiologists, a kitchen run by a dietitian. We're actually teaching these, these life skills to young people that are experiencing severe, severe mental illness as part of their treatment. And so it's, you know, but if you think about what that's done to the culture of the mental health service by having these, these you know, the gym, the kitchen, it's completely changed how, how the young people feel about going to that environment too. You know, mental health care doesn't have to just be sitting opposite a therapist talking about your problems. Um, you know, mental health care could be surfing. It could be doing other things as well for certain people. And again, it's stressing the point that it doesn't replace existing treatments. We're, we're absolutely not saying, you know, medication, talking-based therapy, it's pivotal. It's the frontline treatments we have. We don't stop those, but we should be adding exercise and adding the physical stuff to that as well. Simon, as someone who studies and works in this area, what is your exercise routine? Yeah, so it's not so much my routine, but I guess I can just I'm happy to share personally my relationship with activity and how that's changed. So the first thing would be we, we talk about the green gym and the blue gym, and there's some good evidence around this. So the green gym is, is kind of exercise that's happening outside, and we know there's added benefits of that. We've got the blue gym, which is water, and, you know, a lot of people, um, there's added benefits for, for certain people if you can access water. And some people, you know, they talk about, you know, washing away the day or things like that. They just need to jump into the water, and that's that's totally okay. For me, I really enjoy being outside, so I, I really enjoy climbing and, and kayaking. But I think what's changed for me studying, you know, this stuff, and I actually haven't I haven't spoken or thought about this before, so this is kind of interesting for me, but is the idea that I know that something is better than nothing. And so if I'm having a bad day um, or if I'm not feeling good, I know that even if I go to the gym for, for 10 minutes and I do something, I'm going to feel better. 
even if I get outside and go for a walk around the block. So really for me, it's been about challenging that idea of all or nothing, which is very typical where people have this idea, particularly former athletes or people that were really active at one point in their life, they kind of fall into this. And also people, you know, we've done a lot of work with veterans and emergency service workers with post-traumatic stress disorder. And they kind of fall into this idea that, well, unless I can perform at the level I used to, there is no point doing anything. And it's about really challenging that and saying, no, like every minute counts. Everything that you can do will be beneficial. And even just making that conscious decision that now I'm taking this 10 minutes or this 15 minutes to go for a walk or do something. Um, it's a, you know, it's a, it's an evolving lifelong process. We're not going to be, yeah, it changes. And our ability, our injuries, our health, all that stuff changes. It's about finding what you enjoy, sticking to that and trying to prioritize that as part of your health. Simon, we're talking about physical exercise, but what in particular are we talking about? Do you have to go for a 10K run, get your heart rate up, or is it doing some relaxing yoga or going for a slow walk around your block okay? It's all of it. It's all of it. It depends on who you are, what's happened for you in that day, and, and how you feel. Um, it's essentially moving our body. And, and the, the evidence and the science is very clear that the type of activity doesn't matter. What matters is that, you know, we talk about the, the the ideal exercise program. There isn't one, and it's the program you enjoy. And we know that enjoyment is one of the critical factors. Um, if you don't if you don't enjoy it, so if, for example, if you told me I had to run, that was the only exercise I could do, I wouldn't exercise because I just don't like it. I don't enjoy it. So it's about finding what you, what you enjoy. So it could be that, you know, you, you've had a really hard day and you don't have the energy to, to go for, let's say, you normally run. But yet you do have some energy to just do a bit of yoga or to do five push-ups. Great, do that. That's fine. It's still, you know, you've achieved something and you've done something. You know, we've also got to think about people with different levels of ability and, and, and physical abilities. If you have a certain injury or a certain limitation, we, we can't just tell people unless you do this magical exercise program, you can't get the benefits because that's just not true. So everybody, and I mean that, you know, in the sense of actually everybody, there is something you can do. You know, one of the most underutilized forms of activity is resistance training. And we did some work in in southern Turkey on the Syrian border with a, a community organization there of mental health professionals um, using rubber bands to, to teach people how to do strength training um, as a way of, 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 you know, improving, you know, feeling better, um, empowering particularly women in that context. So there's so many different options. It's about what can be done, where the person is, what they have access to and what they enjoy. Simon, before I let you go, there are three questions we ask all guests that come onto Could You Voice. You have to declare your favourite beach in the eastern suburbs, where you can get the best coffee and where sells the best burgers. Okay, so I, I mean, I'll declare my bias. I live in Coogee, so I'm in a say Coogee is the, the, my favourite beach. Best coffee, it's the best, it's also the one I frequent the most would be High Street Society opposite the hospital. And they're not paying me, but I would say the best burgers also there. They do a great, you know, um, and working down the road, it's it's nice and accessible. I'll make sure that Dave Martin knows <laughs> that you're there for his coffee and burgers. And Simon, if people would like to learn more about your research, where should they head to? So we've got a website on through UNSW, Twitter. We share a lot of this research on, on social media as well. So it's it's all there. Thank you for joining us on Coogee Voice. Thanks for having me. Wow, what a fascinating conversation. Now, remember, 
Anything is better than nothing. Now, if you'd like to learn more about Simon's research, give him a follow on Twitter at Simon underscore Rosenbaum, or you can find him on the UNSW website. You've been listening to Coogee Voice.